series called Resolution. And it was great to have missionary Joel Slater and his family with us uh, last week. And let me just tell you guys, you, you guys are generous givers. Uh, we, were, we, we blessed them with a great offering last week. Uh, money is still coming in, but thank you for catching the vision for what the Slaters are doing in Malawi. And they really encouraged us with a great message uh, last week and kind of in line with this whole series. And today I want to talk about another resolution we need to make for the new year. But before we jump into that, I want to kind of review where we've been. We've talked about three resolutions for 2019, three renewed priorities. And it's not about getting thinner or quitting something. It's actually about stuff that is fundamental, things that we should just be doing as followers of Jesus. So our number one resolution was this. This year, I will guard my thoughts carefully knowing they influence my attitudes and my actions. And many of you know the power of your thought life has derailed your life. And so that's where we got to start, right here. Number two, this year I will pursue healthy relationships that inspire and influence me to become the best version of me. Some of you know this is a year to say no to some influences, some friends that you've had in your life because you know they've not been bringing the best version of you out, all right? And so we learned about the value of that and the value of healthy relationships like getting involved in a life group where you can meet people and build that healthy relationship. So one more plug for life groups today is a last day to sign up out in the lobby or online for the groups that are currently going for the next several weeks. And then Two weeks ago, we talked about this, that this year I will learn to dream again. Some of you have lost that sense of dreaming, to dream again, believing that God wants to do something great in me and through me. Do you know that God has a purpose for your life, and it's not just to arrive safely at death, right? There's something he wants you to do while you're here. God has a purpose and a plan for your life. So we talked about that. You can revisit all of these messages online. They're all available to you through iTunes as well. And we'd encourage you to connect with those. And today I want to talk about another resolution that will help us in this new year. But before I get there, I want to share a story of a guy who captured this resolution. His name was Louis Zamperini. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Louis Zamperini? A couple of you, probably because you read a book called Unbroken, um, or maybe you watched the movie Unbroken. Um, but it is the story of Louis who started out in Torrance, California, uh, kind of a little bit of a rebel. He got himself in trouble in his youth years, and he eventually was encouraged to turn that energy that he had toward running. And he actually became a great runner, became an Olympic runner. And in 1936, he actually participated in the Olympics in Berlin. And then World War II came, and he got enlisted into the war. And he was a bombardier. And uh, the, the plane that he was in, flying over the Pacific Ocean, got shot down. And many of the guys on that uh, plane with him uh, lost their life in the crash. A few survived, and Louis and one other gentleman spent 47 days lost at sea, kind of floating over 2,000 miles of just space until they were finally discovered. But they were discovered by uh, Japanese soldiers, um, and they were put into a prison of war camp. And in this prisoner of war camp, Louis was kind of singled out. They were all treated horrifically, but Louis was especially singled out by the prison guard. His name was The Bird. That's what they called him, The Bird. And uh, he was singled out primarily because it was known that he was an Olympic runner for America. And so all of this angst and hatred was, point, was poured out on Louis. He was treated horrifically, barely survived his time of being a prisoner of war. When he went home, finally released from that... <clears throat> prison and from war, he lived with such anger and hatred and unforgiveness toward the bird. 
this, Jewish, this, this just Japanese prison guard, to the point where his anger turned inward. And he began to, to drink alcohol, became an alcoholic, and he began to, to just derail his own relationships and began to make life terrible for him until a moment where he found the key of forgiveness. So, Terry, go ahead, roll the video. Forgiveness is always possible. You might be thinking, yeah, Kelly, but you don't know my story. You don't know what happened to me. You're right, I probably don't. But I want to talk today about this key that Louis learned, the key of forgiveness, and how we need to learn this new year um, to forgive freely, to forgive freely. That's my challenge, because the question I, I have for all of us in this, in this room is, how many years of your life are you willing to live in the misery of your unforgiveness? For Louis, fortunately, it was only a couple of years until he learned that his life and his bitterness and his unforgiveness was only creating a prison that was killing and hurting him and those closest to him. How long are you willing to to live in that, that prison of unforgiveness? Or could today be a day you learn the value of forgiving freely? I want you to go to your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a couple of ways you can do this. One, we have Bibles in the seat in front of you. Just take that. If you don't have a Bible that's your own, we give it to you. It's your gift. It's our gift to you. Please take it. Otherwise, some of you use your smart devices, and that's really cool. We want you to use the smart devices. Uh, if you are following along, you can go to the UVersion Bible app, or you can go to our website, albanync.org, and notes are right there for you. Some of you have downloaded our church app, and thank you for doing that. Uh, the Neighborhood Church app is available in any store. Uh, just look for Share Faith Neighborhood Church, because Share Faith is the company that produces it for us. Share Faith Neighborhood Church, and you'll find our app there in your app store as well. And we push our notes to you through the app, so we'd encourage you to get that as well. But in Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus teaching, and he's teaching about sin and forgiveness. And the whole chapter is about sin and forgiveness. And in the midst of this teaching, especially kind of when he starts talking about, hey, when somebody sins against you, a brother or a sister, here's what you're supposed to do. And after this kind of teaching about it, Peter comes to him. And he's got a question for Jesus. And we see it in Matthew 18, verse 21. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times? We're going to just pause there for a minute because Peter actually thought he was being pretty generous to say seven times. Let me explain why. Because in Jewish rabbinic uh, tradition, you would forgive somebody three times. But if they offended you the fourth, you no longer had to forgive them. It was like strike three, you're out. So that's like the origin of baseball right there in Jewish tradition. Three strikes, you're out, sorry, no more forgiveness for you. And so Peter's thinking, okay, so if tradition is three times I forgive and then no more, I'm going to just double that and add one for good measure. I got to be sounding pretty generous. Won't Jesus be proud of my generosity? And then Jesus looks at him. He goes on in verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Or maybe your translation says 70 times seven. You see, Jesus' response to Peter showed just how small Peter's thinking was and often how small even our own thinking is. Sometimes what we think is so generous is like, a fraction of what Jesus wants us to do, right? And so he's like, oh, that's not a bad attempt, Peter, but 
Let me create a different figure for you to think about rather than just seven times because you're still missing the mark. So what was Jesus' point? Was this point to count higher? Was Jesus' point to say, okay, get a longer you know, tabulation sheet because it's going to be 77 times? Or if you're reading the Bible, it says 70 times 7. That's 490 times. So am I supposed to keep like a ledger, Jesus, where I just keep check marking? Is that, is that the whole point behind why we have this? No, his point is by the time you've forgiven somebody 77 times or 490 times, you're certainly going to be in the habit of forgiving. I mean, even if it's just... Eight times, eventually it becomes a way of life that you are becoming a person who by nature is forgiving. And Jesus' point isn't so much to do the math that you can create a new boundary. Jesus' point is not establishing the boundary at all. What he's trying to do is establish a new behavior toward forgiveness, not a boundary around forgiveness. Because some of you want to live within the boundary of forgiveness. Okay, Kelly, how many times can this person keep doing that thing and I have to keep forgiving them? I mean, help me understand a boundary so I can function within this justice-based boundary. And Jesus says, forget the boundary. I want you to have a new behavior and a new belief toward forgiveness. So, to demonstrate that, he goes on to tell a story. We call it a parable. A parable is basically a story Jesus tells that has a spiritual truth but is applied to a real-life situation, stuff that just happens every day. So he, he goes on to this parable, and what I want us to understand about this parable is the emphasis of this parable is about what happens when a brother sins against a brother, all right? Um, and so let's look at it. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So in the story Jesus is telling, some, some scholars think that maybe he was using the illustration of a tax collector who worked for the king. And perhaps this tax collector embezzled money while he worked for the king. And when the king's bookkeeper went about settling the books, it was discovered this man owed a great deal of money to the king that he had not paid. In fact, it says 10,000 bags of gold. In today's economy, that would be anywhere between 12 and $20 million. And depending on the value of gold and inflation, some have said that even could be the amount of, of close to a billion dollars this guy owed the king. Now, how many of you have $12 million? Okay, one of you, I'll be watching. I'll be watching for you. Thursday night, Royal Family Kids Camp. All right. I mean, reality is this is, an, this is a number none of us can wrap our heads around, right? I mean, 12 million, 20 million, a billion. I mean, very few people in America can, can operate in that kind of currency. And this is what is owed this king. Some translations use the word talent rather than bag of gold. A man in that economy, it would take a man 20 years of work to earn one talent. Okay, that was just the economy. So our equivalent would be one bag of gold that he was talking about would take 20 years to earn. He owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. How many years would it take this? Now I'm going into math teacher mode. How many years? Like a, it's a story problem, and I hated those things in school, right? How many years would it take for this man to pay the king back if all he could earn over 20 years was one 
bag of gold. Friends, the math is it would take him 200,000 years to pay the king back. So are we wrapping our head around the size of this debt? It is unbelievable amount of money. And so the solution was, I'm going to take your wife, you, your kids, all your stuff. I'm going to sell you into slavery because you cannot afford to pay this debt back. So the story continues, verse 26. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? So he pleads to the king's compassion. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Doesn't that just sound noble? I can live 200,000 years. I'll pay it back, I promise. Just be patient with me. Don't do this to me. Well, what happened? Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. How many would love it right now if, like, your bank said, you know, I know you owe this much on your house. It's going to take you, like, 30 years to pay it off. I'm just going to write it off. Wouldn't you just love that? It's like, hallelujah. You know, that's great news. This guy writes off a 20 million or maybe even a billion dollar debt, just writes it off, forgives him. Why? Why? Why did the king do this? In the parable, we see basically that this man's attitude toward a hopeless situation is I, repentant. I, I'm sorry. I, he falls to his knees. I'll pay it back. And it was his attitude, not his ability. He didn't have the ability. It was his attitude that touched the heart of the king. And so the king forgives the debt. He pays it off. He writes off 10,000 bags of gold out of his books and clears the man's debt. The story continues, verse 28. But when that servant, forgiven a billion-dollar debt load, right? When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. So he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Now, interesting story. This man was just forgiven a boatload of debt, written off the books, forgiven, doesn't owe a dime, finds one of his servants who owes him money. Fellow servant, he says, look, pay me back. Chokes him over $5,000. Okay? That is 0.03% of what he owed the king. That is one three thousandth of the amount of money he owed the king. That, by the way, the king forgave. Yet he finds in his own heart no ability to forgive the debt, a small debt that a fellow servant owes him. So what happens? Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. I think it's interesting that when you parallel the stories, both of those men, the original servant and his peer servant, they both did the same thing, right? They fell to their knees, begged for mercy, I'll, I'll take care of it. Different responses though, right? So what happens? Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. The unjust servant that we see in this story He was unwilling to grant to others what he so desperately wanted. Isn't that funny how we do that? We're not going to give other people what we know we so desperately want and need. 
Why does that happen? I mean, how does this happen? And so what we see is this man had a legal right to exercise. He can have his friend thrown, thrown into prison. But he doesn't have the moral right to do that given what was just done to him. He was forgiven an immense amount of debt. But yet he chose not to forgive the debt of his peer and have him tossed into prison. What happens? Verse 32, then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. Here's what's interesting about this parable. Now, again, we don't want to read into it too far because it sounds like God is going to forgive and then he's not. And so we don't read too far into it because this is about brother forgiving brothers. Let's not confuse the story here. But here's what's interesting. The king originally set the servant free from his debt, from his prison. But now through his actions, this unjust servant has now imprisoned himself because of his unforgiveness. And this is the danger of when we want it this way, but we're not going to extend it this way, is we find ourselves being imprisoned. Why? Because there's a sense within us that we want justice. And so what he wanted was justice. And so the king <laughs> gave him what he wanted. You want justice? All right, here's justice. I'm going to put you back in prison until you pay back everything you owe me. See, I'm good with justice because some folks would say, well, Kelly, shouldn't, we, shouldn't justice be served in certain situations? Yeah. Let me help you understand it. The difference when it comes to forgiveness versus justice has to do with your motivation toward it. What is your heart toward it? If your heart towards somebody being justly dealt with is revenge or vengeful, then that motivation's wrong. But how many know sometimes justice needs to be served for folks to kind of process through it, get better on the other side? I understand that too. So in the story here, again, we don't want to read into it too deeply, but the point is, for this gentleman, he did not forgive his, his friend who had a small amount of debt. And so because of that, he became a prisoner of his own unforgiveness. So what do we do with this? Let's go on to the verse. This is what's killer about how Jesus ends this parable. Here's his landing note. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. What happened? What, what happened to this man in this story? What happened was he accepted the king's forgiveness, but it never moved him deeply. It never transformed his life. See, when God has forgiven me, that should transform how I view you and how I choose to forgive you. That's what Jesus is trying to share in this story. Look, the king of kings has forgiven me a pretty great debt load that I could never pay off. I have no ability. But my attitude was, God, I repent of that. Forgive me. And he does. But what does he expect of me now? He expects of me to be the same way to those who offend me. Isn't it interesting that we want no boundaries around us when it's considering God's forgiveness of us? Okay, God, I don't want any boundaries. I, I want to live in the grace and your forgiveness. But then we want to create boundaries of how much we're going to forgive other people. And this is what he's trying to address in this issue. 
And it's not just in this parable. Multiple times we're told that we should be forgiving people as we have been forgiven. There should be the sense of, as I've experienced and appreciated this, it's profoundly touched me in a way that I'm going to do that here. Let's look at it. Matthew chapter 6. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Many of you have memorized this and you pray this, but do you mean it? Because he says this right in the middle of that prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in the same way that you are forgiving my debt, God, I'm going to forgive those that sin against me or, or, or have debts against me. We go on in Matthew 6, 14, where Jesus expounds on this idea out of the prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. What is he touching on here? What he's dealing with is an unrepentant, uncaring heart. And when I love this, but I don't do anything with this, I have an unrepentant, uncaring heart. His forgiveness has not transformed my life. His grace and mercy and love has not touched me deeply until it moves through me to those around me. And that's the big issue he deals with. Paul picks it up in Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other. And forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In other words, the, the quantity and quality of forgiveness that God has poured out on us determines the quantity and quality of forgiveness I extend to those around me. You're going, Kelly, that's a pipe dream. There's no way I can do that. You're right. In your own human ability, there is no way you can do this. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more here in a moment. But our forgiveness of others should be in proportion to what God has done for us. Because failing to do that imprisons us in bitterness and unforgiveness, like we saw in the life of Louis Zamperini. So what's a resolution? Number four resolution is this. This year, I will forgive freely and not allow unforgiveness to poison and imprison my heart. Because that my unforgiveness does all the time. It poisons you and it imprisons you. So how are we going to do this? How, how are we going to forgive freely? Well, here's what it is, so you know what it looks like, and it's also what it's not, okay? So we're going to talk a little bit about both sides of what forgiving freely is and, and what it isn't. So the first one is this, that to forgive freely, it involves canceling a debt. In fact, the, the metaphor of debt cancellation clearly defines, I believe, what forgiveness really is all about. It kind of defines it. Let me explain. When you forgive someone... You're canceling the debt they owe you. But more specifically, you know what's happening? You're making a conscious choice to absorb the debt yourself. It's costly. You choose not to make the offender pay for their offense. And so by, by forfeiting your right to collect, you, you make three promises to that person. The first one is this, that you promise that you will not bring up the debt to use it as leverage against them. How many of you know we're great at this in family life? Something happened, I forgive you, okay? Fast forward a couple of days. You always, right? That's what, that's what we go do. We just, we go to, the, I totally forgot that I forgave you. You always, and we just stack it on up. And we use it as leverage to control them. That's not forgiveness, friends. To forgive To cancel that debt means I'm not going to bring that debt up against or use it as leverage. 
That doesn't mean that you can't talk about it. Because, friends, there are stuff in life and family you got to talk about. you got to talk your way through some things. That's not what I'm, I'm not saying avoid the conversation. I'm just saying you cannot use the information to manipulate and control and use it against them in the future. You're also promising that you'll not bring up the offense to others and slander that person who sinned against you. And boy, are we good at doing this. Especially, thank you, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can now fillet anybody we want to socially. But we don't do that. Forgiveness means I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that under the guise of, well, I need prayer for. And you bring all your 20 friends around prayer for this idiot who's done this to you and how terrible they are. The prayer was never about help me forgive him. It was just you wanted to air your frustrations. I get that. This doesn't mean you can't seek help and advice from godly people who will help you to process through and encourage you a more redemptive way to deal with it. But you're not going to slander them. That's what this means. You're not going to use it against them in a way that slanders them when you cancel that debt. Thirdly, you promise not to dwell on the offense yourself. One of the biggest challenges that when someone sins against us is not to replay that offense over and over and over and over again in your mind. And when you fail to forgive someone, you break those promises and you hold that against them and you talk about them. And that's not, friends, what forgiving freely is about. It's about canceling the debt. Last time I discovered love in Corinthians 13, it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. But to forgive freely also, it's costly because of that. To forgive freely is costly, but withholding forgiveness is more costly. You know, no matter how you spin it, forgiveness is going to be costly. Regardless of how big or how small that offense is, canceling a debt and absorbing that cost is going to hurt. But the parable shows us that not forgiving also has a price, right? A price of imprisonment, torment, inner anger that begins to erode you and the quality of your life. And here's what happens. We have to let the truth of what Jesus is talking about sink into the feelings that we have. Because when we're hurt, what do we like to do? We like to nurse that grudge. We like to nurse that hurt. It makes us feel like we have a control of that peace. And so we nurse it, and we keep it, and we somehow feel, quote, better because I'm holding all this angst and anger against you, and I'm nursing it, and I feel better. But what it does is it blinds you to what is happening to you spiritually, that it is bankrupting you. And it's putting you in a posture of being unrepentant and uncaring. And friends, that's dangerous territory to be when God has so freely forgiven us. So, also to forgive is an event and a process. This is the part that's so important because, you know, I think sometimes we're tempted to think that once we have forgiven somebody, we're done. But how many know you're going to see that somebody again? And so forgiving someone is not just a past event. It kind of moves with the end of the future. In fact, ironically, just, just yesterday, I was in a social gathering, and I, I crossed the room saw somebody that um, offended me years ago. And that immediately came to mind. Now, fortunately for me, my heart was trying to prepare for this sermon today, so thank God I was loaded. So I, I just, I said, Lord, I remember, I remember, but I have forgiven that person. And I had to make the decision that I have forgiven. I forgave them then, and it's still a process. I have forgiven that person. So there is that sense of it being 
a process that we go on. And the reason this is important is because if, even if you've forgiven someone of an offense, you'll still be tempted to think about it next time you see them. And without realizing it, you'll end up piling all these things against them. So when you do see them and you have that angst and anger and unforgiveness, you're going to unload on them in a way that's not okay when you supposedly forgave them, right? And also, to forgive freely is not the same as forgetting. How many times have we heard to forgive is to forget, right? I mean, we love that. And we kind of base it on Scripture a little bit, and I think we bend it out of context. But here's what we're using. Uh, Jeremiah 31:34 says this. For I, let's talk about God, for I forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Don't we love that? Because it's like, oh, thank you, God, that you do this magical thing with my sin and you put it in the sea of your forgetfulness, whatever that means. You know, you just, you toss it into there and all of a sudden you forget. Here's a little reminder. God is omniscient when he's all-knowing. God is not like forgetful, all right? He knows, he remembers, but he remembers within a context. And the context is, I have forgiven. So he remembers that he forgive you for that, and therefore he's not going to hold that against you or he's not going to hold that over you. It's not that he's forgotten. Like, hey, somehow God's forgetful. It's like the little, you know, the, the amnesic father who just doesn't remember everything. No. So that applies to us. You're not going to forget. In fact, how many of you know that by trying to forget what somebody did to you, all you're doing is Remembering what they did to you. It's kind of like saying to you, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant at all. Yeah, the more you're telling yourself to forgive that person for what they did, the more you're remembering what they did. So it doesn't work to say, I'm going to forget remembering what you did. Nah, it's not even biblical. Because Jesus remembered. As he hung on that cross and he looked at those that were gathered around him, some were hurling insults at him and calling him all kinds of horrific, horrific names while he's bleeding on this cross, bleeding out for them. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. He knows exactly, he's seeing it real time what's happening in this moment. He's not forgetting, but he's choosing to understand what he is doing right now is for them on this cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what he was remembering is he's remembering their sin within the context of the cross. Yes, I have forgiven you. So friends, it's not bad, because sometimes we think, man, I guess I didn't forgive, because I still remember. No, don't confuse this. They're going to remember, but I hope your remembering is in the context of God. You have given me the strength within to forgive them. Because here's what I know to be true. In my own human strength, I cannot forgive a person for what they've done. I can't. That's why psychologists get paid big-time money. But by the grace of God and the forgiveness I've experienced and how it transforms my life, it changes me. And I become more compassionate and merciful and caring, and then I can extend that to others. But if we try to say, well, it's just not fair, Kelly, what you're asking is not fair. That is so unjust to just forgive somebody. I mean, does that mean I should just become a person people can keep sinning against? 
Sometimes the things that we say like that, I want you to take that for a minute and try to put it in the mouth of Jesus. Hey, imagine him standing before his father. This is unfair. I'm going to go to this world and die for these idiots down here who just keep doing stupid stuff. I have done nothing wrong. This is totally unfair. I mean, how does that sound in the mouth of Jesus? Not very good, does it? And he's the example of the forgiveness of the Father that we get to enjoy, who took our place on that cross for our sin so we could be forgiven. And we want to stand there and say, it's unfair for me to forgive like that. Really? But to forgive freely means dealing with sin in a redemptive way. That means it's not just about saying, okay, I'm going to be forgiving, and therefore people are just going to keep doing bad stuff to me. All right? The Bible actually gives us some guidance about this, all right? In fact, like I said, just before Peter asks him the question and thinks he's all generous about seven times, Jesus is talking about the way we deal with sin. He's not saying just take it. Everybody's going to just keep being bad. Just take it. That's not what he says. He says that if a brother or a sister has done something to you, you need to go to them and try to restore your brother or sister to you through a conversation. And hopefully in that conversation, they see what they did that was wrong and they repent of it and and you're restored. And if not, the Bible says then get a friend and you go together to that person and you have that conversation. And if that doesn't work, then maybe you got to involve the church in the process. And some of you have done that redemptive steps of trying to make things right with somebody you're at odds with. So there is a redemptive way to deal with sin because you know what? Sin is a problem. That's why God wants to deal with it. That's why he sent Jesus to help us deal with it. We need to deal with it. But we need to deal with it in a redemptive way. And we see that in Matthew 18. So I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter sometime this week and and look at your own life and go, God, am I doing this? Because resolution for today is this. This year I will forgive freely and not allow unforgiveness to poison and imprison my heart. I'm going to wrap it up with this. I want to give you some characteristics of a person who is unforgiving. Because maybe you don't know that you are. But if you have some of these characteristics that work in your life, you need to stop and do an assessment. Okay? So an unforgiving person never stops grumbling. Always seems to be offended by something. Is constantly disappointed by others and by life in general. Is dissatisfied with some area of their life, if not several. They avoid spending time with God alone. Is quick to get angry and hangs on to pride and self-centered behavior. If any of those are descriptors of kind of where you're at right now, you have to kind of just pause and go, all right, is unforgiveness an issue with me? Because now let me kind of parallel that to a, a forgiving person. Because a forgiving person is, an, is intentional about living in peace. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, right? They're intentional about that. They also are kind and they care more about doing the right thing than doing what is in it for themselves. Like forgiveness. Absorbing that cost to forgiving another person. It's generous with their time and money and their life. They live by the golden rule. They meet with God regularly through prayer and devotion. They offer the benefit of the doubt to others when their actions are hurtful or disappointing. Because you know what? Unforgiveness makes you suspicious. And so you give the person the benefit of a doubt when they've hurt you. And they consistently pray for other people, especially 
those that have offended them. Remember the Bible says that, we're to pray for our enemies. I mean, come on. What Jesus does all the time is he takes our self-oriented justice system and he just flips it over. And says, let me show you the way you're going to do it. It's going to look like a cross because you're going to have to bear the cost of that person's offense when you forgive them. But that's what I did. And I'll give you the strength to do the same. So right now, let's just close our eyes and take a look inside because maybe you recognize, you know, Kelly, darn it, you're speaking to me. I'm a person who's having a hard time forgiving. I'm living with a sense of bitterness, but you don't know what's happened to me. Friend, I don't. But Christ knows. And I get it that it's hard because I've already told you it's costly to forgive. But let me tell you this, you can't do it until you have first experienced the pure and wonderful forgiveness that God extends to you. And I know we've already prayed about that before communion, but you know what? It's got to start there. Some of you are living under this tension of not feeling like you and God are on good terms. So you got to start right there. Here's what I know about God. He's not drawn a boundary around forgiveness. In fact, the Bible tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. All right, so maybe you're here and you're, you're wrestling with that. You're thinking, God, I've already crossed that boundary five times ago. No, you haven't, friends. As long as you hear the sound of my voice and you know you need to respond to this, you're not beyond salvaging. God loves you, has a plan for your life, and it's a plan of forgiveness. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here and you're saying, Kelly, I need to be forgiven today, just raise your hand and say, that's me, Kelly. Anybody else? Thank you. Lord, you know our hands and you know the hearts of those raising their hands. You know where they're at right now with you. And God, I thank you for 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Well, you give us the promise of confession that leads to forgiveness. So even now, Lord, we confess our need of you. And we repent. Because confession is great, but repentance is necessary. Which means I'm not going to keep going down that path. Lord, let your forgiveness flood the hearts of those today who are crying out to you for it because you've promised that. And that's where it's got to start because we can't extend that kind of forgiveness to those that have offended us without first experiencing the depth of your forgiveness for us. So God, touch their hearts today with the beauty and the wonder of your forgiveness that you lavish upon us as we ask you. And that forgiveness within us transforms our life. So thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. We commit our life to you. We know we're sinners that need your grace, and we confess our need of that today. But now maybe you're here in the room, and you're saying, Kelly, there's some people that I know God is prompting in my heart right now that I have got to forgive, and I didn't think I could do it. But maybe today I can see that with God's help I can because he's touched my heart so dramatically And I need to do this so I stop poisoning and imprisoning my own heart. Because we think that somehow hating them and being bitter and not forgiving them hurts them. And friends, it hurts you. You're the one suffering. So if you're here today and saying, Kelly, there's somebody God's put in my heart right now that I need to forgive. Just raise a hand and say, that's me. There's somebody I know I need to forgive. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks. Lord, you, you see. You know the stories. 
Because that's what we love about you, God. You're not disconnected from our life. You're right here in the thick of it. And life is messy. And we know that people are going to hurt us. And maybe the person that hurt us isn't even here today alive. And we're still living under the pain of that. And maybe they can't repent of what they did. But God, we can still forgive. Because that's your territory. That's where you begin to work in our hearts. And it's your grace and your mercy that transforms our outlook toward that person. That we can, with a caring and compassionate heart, forgive. Or maybe that person still lives in our community. Maybe they live in our house. Maybe they live in our neighborhood. Maybe they go to our school. Lord, help me be the extension of your forgiveness to them to not hold that against them, but to be willing with your help to shoulder the cost of that forgiveness because that's exactly what you did, Jesus. And then you have the way of lifting our souls. Thank you. Help us to be forgiving people who forgive freely because that's who you are. In Jesus' name.